time for the Vintage Truth Podcast with best-selling author and Bible teacher, Jeff Kinley. Welcome back to the Vintage Truth Podcast. I'm Jeff Kinley and giving away some copies of my book, The End of America, question mark, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. And we are a country in crisis right now. In fact, there are many questions that people are asking, not just Christians, but just people. In fact, a recent poll of Americans said that when they would ask, do you believe we're living in the end times? 41% of Americans said, yes, I believe that we are. In fact, a significant portion of those people believe that they believe the world's going to come to some sort of cataclysmic end within their own lifetime. So people even outside of the church and people who are into Bible prophecy, people are seeing it out there. People are saying that, hey, the world's not in a good place right now, and neither is our country. And I happen to love my country. I love America. And I think it's the greatest country on earth. And... um I want to do what I can to help my country, but my country is um, inflicting a lot of its own wounds here. It's a lot of self-inflicted wounds in America right now. And we believe that the answer as Christians is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just social programs. It's certainly not the government. The answer is Jesus. There are other good things we can do in life, but the answer is the gospel. So I wrote this book, the end of America, to help us understand how did we get to this point? Where are we in our nation's history? Where do we come from? Where, where, from where have we come? How far away have we strayed? Where are we right now? Where are we going if things continue? And does the Bible say anything about that? I mean, is America even mentioned in Bible prophecy anywhere? Obviously not by the name America, but is, is America alluded to in Scripture I talk about? that in six major views on how people believe they find America in the Bible. And I talk about that. Talk about the persecution that's coming on Christians in this country. And it's currently happening among Christians all over the world. And most importantly, man, if we're headed towards this, this spiral, I mean, does this mean that God's going to judge America or are we already under God's wrath. And if so, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does the Bible actually say? That's what Venice Truth is all about, asking what the Bible says. And of course, the book is full of hope as well, because I call Christians to a time of awakening, a time to rise, a time to become who God wants us to be in this world. So we've been talking about this cultural upheaval that we're experiencing right now in our world and specifically in our country about what's going on, the violence, the hostility, the, all the clash between law enforcement and anarchists and white supremacists and, you know, everybody else that's kind of coming together. It's just, it's like this big giant soup of things and ideas and people that are all in the middle of this boiling cauldron. And, um, I fear it's going to boil over if, if we don't do something. So what do we do living in a post-Christian America? And we were talking about something that Paul did that was sort of his MO, his modus operandi, his, his way of doing things, his method, or at least one of his methods, 
was to engage his culture. He, he went out there. He was among the people out there. And that's something we have to do as the church. This is not a time for us to just, you know, lock the gates and get behind the church walls and just sort of huddle up and be safe. No, Jesus wants us to penetrate culture. He said that we are the salt of the earth, that we are the light of the world. And if you remove all the light, then all you have is darkness. And so we have to make sure that that the light is where the darkness is. I mean, we come together as the church. We have all the lights in the same room. That's good. But we have to scatter and, and penetrate and shine on the darkness. And some of that light exposes dark deeds and dark things. But part of being the light is that you also illumine the way. You guide the way. You show the way to the truth. It's like coming out of the woods with a flashlight. I mean, you, you want to come out of the woods. You don't want to just see that you're in the woods. You want to come out of the woods. Well, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is the light. Jesus Christ, his message is the answer. So we're talking about Paul. And Paul began with these atheistic um, pagans who were worshiping all these different gods. And he, they, they come to this one altar or statue or inscription up in Mars Hill in Athens, it says, the inscription said, to an unknown God. And Paul just flat out told them, you're worshiping in ignorance. Let me explain to you what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I do have the truth. And let me tell you what the truth is. That's what he says in Acts 17, 24. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in, a, in temples made with human hands. I find that very interesting that Paul would begin not with, you know, with Jesus and the cross, but with God as creator. And think about where we are today in our society, that God is not even allowed to be the creator anymore. We've substituted a supernatural divine creation out of nothing with this silly, ridiculous, unfounded, non-supportable theory of evolution. And so, I mean, it blows my mind to think about. We've, we've just completely replaced the teaching of God as creator with this theory by some guy back in the 1800s named Charles Dar Darwin phenomenally blows my mind. But you see, unless you begin with God as creator, nothing else makes sense. Genesis is the first book of the Bible for a reason. There's a reason why God began his entire written revelation with the words, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And then we get a day-by-day -day account of what he created on all of those days. And if you're interested in knowing more about creation and you want to do some research on what all that means, I'd like to recommend the website Answers in Genesis.
Just type in answers in Genesis and you can basically quote unquote Google anything on there, search anything. And these guys are, are a, an organization that is committed to providing biblical answers to today's problems about God as creator and that type of thing. And so you'll find a lot of resources there. In fact, I wrote a book with its, its founder, Dr. Uh, Ken Ham is his name. We wrote a book together here a couple of years ago. But anyway, all that to say is Paul begins with God as creator. You know, it's very interesting because in, in John chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, this is what John said about creation and about Jesus' role, the second member of the Godhead, his role in creation. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then he says, All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so whatever was created in Genesis, the second member of the Godhead was a part of. The triune God was a part of creating the world. And over in Colossians, this is what Paul said about Jesus. He said, For by him all things were created, both in heaven, in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. And basically, Paul's establishing to these Colossian believers that are being hit with a whole lot of false fake news about God, that Jesus is the originator of creation. He not only made everything, but everything was made for him because he's God. And that's the basis of understanding anything in life is knowing that God is creator. So that's why Paul begins there by saying the God who made the world and all things in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands. In other words, he's saying, hey, all these buildings that you have where you go worship all your gods, the God doesn't live in a building made with human hands. You know, even sometimes as Christians, I'll hear them talk about, oh, we're going to the Lord's house this Sunday. Really? What room does he sleep in? Where's his throne room? Is there a holy of holies there somewhere? It's not the Lord's house. It's brick and wood and wiring. It's just a building where Christians go. They don't have to go there. They can go to a tent if they want to or, or go outside. But we go to buildings because we like air conditioning and comfortable seats. We're Americans, right? The Lord's house can be anything as long as the Lord's people are together. It's not the Lord's house. He doesn't live there. Once when my youngest son was running through church, which he shouldn't have done, but he was running through church. He's about four years old. And this precious older woman stopped him, grabbed him, just, just like horse collared him, like a football tackle almost, and said, young man, stop running in the Lord's house. And he looked up at her and he said, matter of factly, he wasn't trying to be rude or disrespectful. He just said, God doesn't live here. He lives here, pointing to his heart. Boom. See, Paul's saying the same thing. God doesn't live in human 
church-built buildings. He lives in us who know him. Well, he goes on. He, he says, I'm going to tell you something else about this God, this unknown God that you don't know, I'm going to tell you. He says, the God who made the world doesn't live in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. So what does that mean? Well, Paul's simply saying, God doesn't need you. God is self-sufficient. He's a sovereign, self-sufficient God. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need people, worlds, galaxies, angels. He's not a needy God. But he creates mankind because he desires to have a relationship with us so that we can enjoy him. We, we get the benefit here in this package. And God doesn't really need people. And now he goes into to telling them something about humanity that, that really applies to what's going on in America today. It says in verse 26 of Acts 17, And he made from one, from one blood, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. You see, Greeks believed, that's who Paul's talking to here, Greeks believed that non-Greeks were barbarians. So you've got one people group believing something derogatory about another people group. Gee, where have I heard that before? Where have I seen that in my culture? Where have I seen people groups mistreating other people groups or thinking that they're self-righteous and the other people group is all wrong. Where have I seen violence as a result of that? I can't remember. You see, that's where we are right now. On every side, just about. We're seeing a people group or a race thinking something about another race. And Paul's saying, guys are morons. God made us all. So nobody's any better than anybody else. In fact, we're all in this same boat and the boat is sinking. <laughs> that's, that's basically what he's saying. You know, we're on a sinking boat here. We're all on the Titanic. We struck the iceberg. You got to, got to figure out what to do here. I'm here to tell you what the truth is. I'm going to show you where the lifeboats are. And every one of the lifeboats has Jesus written on the side of it. Now, why did God make all these races. Why did, why did he make the human race? Verse 27 tells us, he says, that they should seek God. So, so the purpose of man being created by this creator that you guys don't even know about, the whole purpose of this is that, is that you would seek him. Not these other gods, but him, the one who actually made you. I mean, why would you want to seek a fictitious God? Why would you want to worship or be a part of a religion whose founder is dead and his, his corpse is rotted in the grave and it's been there for thousands of years. Why do you want to seek that? Why do you want to give your life to a philosophy or belief system or religious leader who's dead? It didn't even work for him. He's still dead. Why do you want it? Paul says, 
Go for the guy that beat death. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. He says that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's simply saying that you don't really have to go on this huge search for God. He, he, he's obvious. And the, way he, the ways in which he's obvious, you can read about in Romans 1, 18 through 23, and then Romans 2, that God has revealed himself through, through creation, through what has been made. You can determine certain things about this being that made the world. And also through conscience, through creation, he's revealed himself, and also through conscience, through the, through the inner compass that God gives humanity that tells us what is right and what is wrong. He's not far from us. He says in verse 28, For in him, that's God, we live and we move and we exist. He's saying that God is not only the creator of mankind, he's the giver of life. You exist, Paul says, because God is giving you life right now. God gives life. God takes life. God is, he's the God of life. He's God over death. He takes and he gives. You know why? Because he's God and he can do that. Paul says the very life that you have right now to live, to move, to exist is from him. Then he does something that's just genius here. Paul then quotes a Greek poet to them. And the fact that he has re- this kind of recall is amazing. I mean, Paul's not, oh, let, me, let me look this up on my iPhone. What did that Greek poet say that time? Oh, let me Google a word. It'll come up. Now, Paul didn't carry a book with him of Greek poetry. No, he's just from his memory. He quotes this Greek poet. He says, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. And he quotes a couple of poets here. One of them is Epimenides, who lived about 600 BC. He was a Cretan and a poet. And then he also quotes the Greek poet Aretas, who was from uh, from Sicily, uh, about 300 BC. But yeah. We're the offspring of God. And, you know, they're, they're kind of saying that to mean what they want it to say, but he, Paul's using it to mean what he wants it to say. And by the way, when Paul talks about God in this passage, when he's using the word God, theos, he's using the Greek word for God, not the, not the Jewish Jehovah God. So why? Because the point is not for you to see that he's the Jewish God. The point of you to see is that he is the God over us all, the creator of, of both Jew and Gentile and Greek. He's God Almighty. And Paul, as, as the genius that he is, dips into the world of Greek poetry and brings out a validating quote that would help support his argument. What's he doing here? He's building a bridge. He's building a relationship. He's helping them see that the truth that you believe, that you've read in your own poets, is something that God himself has said. 
about himself. And the point of all this, because God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. Being therefore, he says, his offspring, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He's not like your statues. He he can't be contained in your statues. You know why? Because he's bigger than that. Because he is the God of the universe. So if there is a God, and if he's this God that Paul proclaims, what's he want from me? How do I get in on this deal? What's he saying to me? What's his message to me right now? If you're at that point with culture. I'm going to find out what that message is. We'll talk about it in the next episode of Vintage Truth. <laughs>